The Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association takes this time to thank our 2023 corporate sponsors. Bristol Myers Squibb, Cytokinetics, BioMarin, Tanaya Therapeutics, Edgewise Therapeutics, and Embrya. And thank you to our 2023 annual patient meeting sponsors. Bristol Myers Squibb, BioMarin, Boston Scientific, Cytokinetics, Tanaya Therapeutics, Edgewise Therapeutics, Rocket Pharmaceuticals, and Alnylam Pharmaceuticals, with additional funding provided by the J.T. Babbitt Foundation. Welcome to Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. I will be your host, Lisa Selberg, and my co-host today is Dr. Alex DeFeria, also patient Alex DeFeria from University of Pennsylvania. And our topic today is kind of going around the theme of septal reduction September, which we named a few years ago. And we take this opportunity to focus a little bit on the topics of septal reduction options as they are available today. And I also want to acknowledge that September is atrial fibrillation awareness month. And please remember that up to 25% of those with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy will also experience atrial fibrillation at some point in their disease process. Alex, good morning and welcome back. Good morning. You know a little bit about septal reductions and obstruction management in the modern era. Can you help our listeners understand what obstruction is and what tools are in our toolbox today to address obstruction? I, I think, honestly, it's some it's a really big point that sometimes gets missed where patients have seen multiple cardiologists and they just keep hearing the term hokum, 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 hokum. And no one really goes in and explains what obstructive versus not obstructive is. And so when we talk about obstruction, what we're talking about is, you know, you have this thickening of the left side of your heart, of the left ventricle. And when that left ventricle fills and is squeezing blood out and trying to pump blood into this big blood vessel called the aorta that comes out of the left ventricle, depending on where the thickening in your heart is, if it's right there where the outflow of blood is, that can cause significant mechanical obstruction. The way I explain it to folks is, you know, if you've got this much space for blood to get out, then if you fill up that much space of it with muscle, and then you fill up the rest of it with something that can happen with the valve. You'll see it in your echo reports if you ever read those reports. It's something called systolic anterior motion of the valve. So you have this valve next to that thick muscle called the mitral valve. And sometimes the high levels of pressure that you have to generate to get blood out of the heart can cause simply, you can think of it as like a suction effect. You imagine if you're driving the car down the road in the fall and you see all those leaves get sucked up behind the car, similar thing can happen to the valve and it just gets pulled in behind that pressure. And so you take this really big space and you fill it up with muscle and valve and then all of a sudden you only have this much space to get blood out of your heart and you can have obstruction in that sense. And people feel that in in terms of symptoms when they get short of breath going upstairs, the having a big meal and then just feeling totally wiped out afterwards, maybe palpitations and chest tightness, that can be a manifestation of worsening obstruction. Because really anything that decreases the filling of the ventricle of the heart can make that space smaller. 
and make you feel worse. So that that is the difference between obstruction, like outflow tract obstruction, the outflow of blood from the heart, versus the other bucket of HCM, which is just as important, non-obstructive HCM. And, and the thing that can get even more complicated is that people that have non-obstructive HCM, when you see your results, your echo report, people might say there's still obstruction in the heart. It's just not flow get, obstruction of flow getting out of the heart. So you can still have gradients or high pressures in the cavity of the heart itself. It's just not obstructing flow out. And so that's an important distinction to make. And so when we talk about obstructive HCM, where it's obstruction of flow out of the heart, that changes a little bit of how we think about management. And that's where Lisa's kind of getting up with septal reduction therapy, which used to be our only option after we've maximized normal medicines with metoprolol and verapamil. We used to then reach for surgery or ablation, which we'll talk more about. And now we've got some more tools, including myosin inhibitors like mavicampin and then some of the, the research investigational drugs we're using. So that was masterclass overview of obstruction. Thank you so much. And it was, I think, perfect for our audience. So thank you. We've evolved in our understanding of obstruction since the very first diagnosis of HCM happened in 1959. And we understand the mechanisms are can be slightly different for some patients. Again, leaning into why center of excellence care matters and high volume experience matters. It's not all from the same reason. Some people have floppy mitral valves that hit the septum more, and some people have septums that hit the mitral valve. And that sounds like chicken and egg, but it matters. And you could have mid-cavity obstruction, and you could have cavity obliteration. There's so many different things that can happen inside the ventricle, including abnormalities and things we don't even typically talk about much, except for here at the HCMA, papillary muscles. And where they're situated, people don't even know. They, can you tell them what their papillary muscles are? Yeah, yeah, I'm a big papillary muscle nerd. I comment on them in my echo reports. So if any of my patients are on, you'll see me talking about your papillary muscles. But Lisa's absolutely right. There are different reasons why people can have obstruction. It was interesting. I had a conversation with one of my colleagues from Mexico. Looked at a lot of patients in Mexico with obstructive HCM. And he's noticed that a lot of his population, maybe the muscle is not super thick. They have more valvular problems that the leaflets, those two little leaflets that close the valve, that one of them can be really long and floppy. And that's what's contributing more to their obstruction, not so much that the muscle's so thick. But in terms of papillary muscles, you know, if you think of the left ventricle again as this thick muscle that has a cavity for flow to go in, and then you have the valve at the top, the mitral valve, then those valves are attached to the muscle by little tiny little cords that then attach to little round muscles called papillary muscles. And those muscles just tether the valve to the heart. And the problem with HCM in the papillary muscles is that those can get thick too. And they can attach to the heart in places that, I'm not gonna say it abnormal because I'm tired of people telling us we're abnormal, but they attach in different places than other people's. And if those muscles attach in just the right spot, they can become problematic and obstruct blood flow. And that has a big impact on our interventions because you have to think about that. And it might not just be a straightforward, let's just remove the thick muscle. You might have to think a little bit more about how to help people in that setting. I like history. I'm a geek and I do like papillary muscles too. I like little fingers in your heart. So <laughs> Dr. Morrow created the Morrow procedure, which was 
really a septal myectomy done in the most rudimentary of ways when he created it, a trough down the septum so that the septum and the mitral valve no longer made contact, but it has evolved since his original surgeries. And I like to think of each surgeon that spends time in the HCM arena having added an element to the surgery. So we go deeper, we go wider, we work on the valves, the papillary muscles, the chordae, we can put placations in the mitral valve or alfieri stitches in the mitral valve. There's so many little tweaks that can be done when somebody really understands the anatomy and they're artists when they're in there. They're, they're sculptors and they're re-sculpting our cardiac anatomy, which then hopefully takes care of the obstruction in almost all cases. Can you talk about how a myectomy is performed? Like, let's give them a, the, the down and dirty and then we'll give them some alternatives to that. But uh, you know this personally. Yeah. You've been yeah. there, you've done that. Yeah. So why don't we add a little of that story? Yeah, I can get into that a little bit. But yeah, I, so I'm also fascinated in the history of it. And I give, I've given grand rounds a couple of times. One of my hats is clinical HCM, but then another very big part of what I do and subspecialize in is approaches to surgery and ablation and myosin inhibitors. So that's a big chunk of what I do. And so at the beginning, when Dr. Morrow designed this, they actually did was a myotomy. So instead of removing tissue, they just sliced it open. And that kind of filleted that muscle that's under tension. And when you slice it open, it just pulls apart and that opens the outflow tract. And the idea of how I understand it came from the idea of what we do for pyloric stenosis, where the muscle that is leading from the stomach to the rest of the abdomen, they sliced that open and they said, huh, I wonder if we could do that in the heart. And so they started doing that. And they actually had pretty decent results for the time. A lot of people had relief of obstruction. And then soon thereafter, they figured out, well, we can actually remove some of that thick muscle. And so they did the trough that you were talking about. And over time, we've realized that not every heart is the same. Not every muscle is in the same spot with the same thickness. So you can't really just do the exact same incision for everybody and inspect to have a durable relief of obstruction. And so over the years, that surgery has evolved. I myself am a product of the Hartzell Schaff generation at Mayo Clinic. That's where I had my myectomy now. It's been like 13 years since I had mine. And, you know, he was of the school that did very extended deep myectomies where they start at the base of the heart, right where the flow is coming out, and they resect deep down into the ventricle to make sure that they're getting all of the obstruction from top to bottom. Getting down to the nitty gritty, that is an open heart surgery that is opening the chest and putting you on a bypass machine to allow your heart to stop so that they can then go in from the aorta, that big blood vessel, they open that up and then they look from the top down and they resect tissue. And it takes a lot of expertise to do that. I go into these operations with Dr. Lurie, who's our surgeon here. I have been into operations with Nick Smadira at Cleveland Clinic to see how he does it. And it takes a lot of expertise and it takes a lot of experience doing it. And so you want someone that's, that this is not a one-off for them, that they do this all the time. And, and so, because a lot of it is positioning and visualization of the muscle and looking at the images beforehand to know where to cut. Usually, 
you can go in, they remove the tissue, and a lot of times, just removing the thick tissue opens up that flow, and you're done. There are times, though, where the valve itself may be from years and years of being involved in that kind of suction that's happening can damage the valve, and you still will have residual obstruction or the valve is leaky. And so we always go in understanding that there is a possibility that we might either have to repair the mitral valve or replace the mitral valve. But the goal is always to try and do as minimal as possible, let you keep your valve and just relieve the obstruction by removing muscle. But sometimes we can't do that alone. The papillary muscles, that Lisa was talking about, sometimes can complicate the procedure as well. There are some surgeons out there that are very proficient with papillary muscle realignment. Dr. Song at Oregon Health Sciences has multiple papers on this and is very skilled with that. And then Dr. Smidira has done it as well. And so there are pretty clever things they can do, all with the goal of opening that flow. And the surgeries, though, in skilled hands are actually very successful and very, very low risk of death compared to other surgeries that are done. So I know it's daunting when I talk to my patients about doing this. And when you show them the data, it kind of reframes things. You know, it, it for the most part, is a pretty safe procedure, as invasive as it sounds. In the right hands, in the right center, where they do a lot of it. High volume matters. Great, great outcomes with it. Probably more in myectomy, alcohol ablation, and transplant, where you really want high, high volume. You you don't want to be the first. You don't want to be a rare. You want to be a common. And, you know, you're listening to a podcast today from two individuals who have been on cardiac bypass. One got to keep their heart. The other one didn't. Um, but we've both been through open heart surgery. And it is... It is not something you go into with pom-poms and cheer and say, yeah, yeah, I get to do this. It's more like I got to do a thing and you do a thing and then you get better. And then you look back and say, I did a thing. And it wasn't a lot of fun to do the thing, but you did the thing. Yeah. 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 And that's for all of these procedures. Uh, we just did an ablation this morning. Patient did great. No residual obstruction. But, you know, one thing that I started here when I was a fellow that I've continued as, uh, you know, in my career is I think it's very important to have a team where everyone communicates. And so when people come to see me, I sit down and I talk to them about all the options and then we review their imaging as a group. So we get together once a month, our surgeon, our interventional cardiologists, all our clinical cardiologists and the nurse practitioners that help take care of our patients. I throw up all the imaging. I say, this is what the heart looks like. This is what I think could be a successful procedure. What do you guys think? And tell me what you think the, the maybe potential issues could be. And then we agree on what the best approach is. And I go into the operating room myself, help guide the surgeons. And that has resulted in really, really good outcomes. And that I think is how it's been done at many of the other high volume centers. And so you kind of want that kind of multidisciplinary approach to this. This is a big deal. Every patient I send, it's a big deal because I remember when I went. It, it is a big deal. And you don't want to go in if you don't need it. And you don't want to go in to an unskilled hand. You want to go in for the right procedure at the right time with the right operator. Yep. And that can come out with really great results. I'm going to put up a comment here from somebody who's watching on YouTube. For people who need the surgery, it sure is a miracle. It's been two years for himself now. 
So he's had a successful experience. And, uh, you know, I hear this all the time. I feel so much better. I'm glad that I did it. But it's not for everybody. And there are some people, specifically if you have coexisting kidney disease and, you know, being on bypass is going to be too hard on your kidneys. Or if you have the right anatomy for an alcohol septal ablation, we've learned a lot about alcohol ablation over the years. Personally, I think it was overused in the early days. And I don't think we were specific enough on who it was used on. We caused a lot of scars in a lot of people. And maybe they went through two, three, four procedures. But I think we've gotten better today at knowing who's got the right anatomy. And when performed in a a hand that knows how to do the procedure, it's a truly effective way to manage obstruction. Can you tell everybody what an alcohol septal ablation is? It does sound kind of creepy when you explain it, but explain it away, Alex. Yeah, so alcohol septal ablations, the idea of it is you take a, a catheter or a tube and you run that tube through the arteries in the body up to that aorta to the heart. And then you engage the small little arteries that feed the muscle. And you're looking for a small little artery that's going to feed that specific spot that's thick. And then you actually inject 100% ethanol or alcohol into that artery and cause a targeted heart attack. And I use that term with patients because I don't, I don't use it to scare them, but that it's literally what we're doing. And the goal of this is for that tissue to die off and thin out. So it, mechanically resulting in the same effect. Obviously, it's not open heart surgery. It's a small nick in an artery. My patient that went and got it today, you know, they ran the tube in, they checked all the numbers, they made sure that the flow was going to the exact right spot and that the person, and there's multiple checks to make sure you're a good candidate for this. One, you have to have a good anatomy that the muscle has to be in the right spot and it has to be fed by an artery that we can actually ablate or thin out. Um, but yeah, that patient got the procedure today. They were going to be here overnight and they'll go home tomorrow and immediately in the operating room, complete resolution of obstruction. Now I usually wait a month or two, repeat the ultrasound to then really pat myself on the back because things can change. That muscle has to thin out and things like that. But all that to be said, it's a less invasive procedure. It can be a great procedure if you have the right anatomy for it and, you know, less recovery. Now, there's a lot of anatomy that isn't great for it. If you have problems with the valve, it's not gonna do anything for your valve. If you have problems with those papillary muscles, it's not gonna do anything for the papillary muscles. And if you have a thick septum that some people that are genetically affected by this condition can have an anatomy that isn't super thick at the very top, it gets thicker as you move down the heart. Some of these patients are not gonna respond as well to ablation. And so that's why I use MRI and echo and look at all these people's hearts before they go in, because if I don't feel like they're going to get a really good durable result from this, and you might still have obstruction and symptoms, then I'm not going to send you for it. It can be a great procedure in the right patient. Being the history buffs that we both are, do you know where the first alcohol ablation was recorded and like how the concept grew? So. I believe a guy named Sigwart, right? Was it Sigwart who was doing BJ ablation? One step before that. Ah, you got me. The idea for Segway and uh, Sigwart and Segways to create an alcohol ablation was a paper that Barry Marin wrote back in the day, just documenting one of his patients who had a naturally occurring infarct 
in this region and got rid of his obstruction by having a naturally occurring infarct. It was documented in a, in a um, case review. And some guys in Germany said, hey, what if we could do that on purpose? And they figured out the way to do it on purpose was through a catheter-based approach. So it's kind of a brilliant evolution of understanding and how we got to a, a really now mainstream treatment for HCM, which I've watched evolve over the past, you know, 24, 25 years. And it really does an amazing job for some people. However, you do get a scar as a consolation prize at the end of it. And that scar may or may not have any clinical consequence in that individual. And there's a risk for needing potentially a pacemaker after it because, you know, your electrical system runs through that same area and slightly higher risk for pacemaker than at least in the large data sets, slightly higher risk for pacemaker after that, after surgery. So there are certain risk factors going into it that you should know about. I've often heard people say, well, alcohol ablation sounds easier. So I'll do that first. And if it doesn't work, I'll go to surgery. I always have to caution that that is potentially an option, but your likelihood of being pacemaker dependent after both of those procedures is quite high. It's not 100%, but it's damn close. An alcohol ablation causes a right bundle branch block. A myectomy causes a left bundle branch block. You can live with one block, but with two blocked, you now have complete heart block. So we got a problem there. Yeah. You want to talk a little bit about what heart block is and what your conduction system is? Yeah, we focus a lot on the left ventricle, but there's actually four chambers to the heart. The top chambers are the atria. Those are the ones that go haywire when we talk about atrial fibrillations, the top chambers that are shaking and not squeezing normally. So you got the top chambers and the bottom chambers are the ventricles, and there's an electrical signal that goes from the very top of your heart and tells the top chambers to squeeze. And then it travels down to the middle of the heart, and there's a little gatekeeper there that then tells the bottom chambers to squeeze. And so that little gatekeeper between the top and the bottom has two bundles under it that sends messages both to the right and the left so that both sides of the heart contract at the same time. And when Lisa's talking about a left bundle branch block, that's when you have damage to the bundle that goes to the left side. Well, if you lose the left bundle, which in most cases after surgery, you will, because if they're doing a good deep myectomy, they're cutting that area out, then the right bundle takes over. If you lose the right bundle, the left bundle takes over. But if you have no bundles, then there's no way for electricity to travel from that gatekeeper to the ventricles to tell them to squeeze. And so then that's completely blocked. We call that complete heart block. And so the ventricles then say, oh my goodness, no one is telling us what to do. Let's just beat on our own as fast as we can, which is usually about 30 to 40 beats a minute, which is not enough for most people. And so people can become highly symptomatic, have lots of problems with that. And so that is an urgent indication for a pacemaker to beat for you. And so what Lisa's saying is, you know, if you're going to do a septal ablation and you're going to inject alcohol into an artery that feeds the right bundle, then you'll lose that or high likelihood that you can lose that. Not 100 percent, but it's a high likelihood. And then if you do a surgery that cuts up the left one, then you're going to be at a pretty high risk for that issue. Now, you know, with a pacemaker, you'll be needing to have a pacemaker pace for you. And that sometimes happens. And that 
you know, that's an understanding that you should just have going into the procedure. It's not to say that you shouldn't have these procedures. It's just an understanding you might need this. And you might already have a defibrillator for other risk factors, and that can pace for you. But still, it's good to understand what you're going through so that you can, because the goal is not for us to make these decisions for you. It's for us to make the decisions together. Awesome. So that's the intervention aspect of managing obstruction in 2023. There's a couple of other ideas that people have, and there's some research going on on some newer procedures. But I think alcohol ablation and myectomy are strong enough interventions at this time. Maybe there'll be some perfection, but I think we're in a pretty good spot. And now we have medical management. And last night we did a webinar here at the HCMA. I've been online a lot the last two days, people. You're probably sick of seeing me. But we did a webinar with Melinda Sai and Martin Marin, and we talked about myosin inhibitor clinical trials for mostly the non-obstructive now. But we've already done a lot of great work in understanding myosin inhibitors in obstructed HCM. And there are other meds that can be used as well. There's old school meds, beta blockers and calcium channel blockers, and even Norpace can be used or disapyramide. But in 2023, I think we're, I'm seeing most people go beta blocker. If they're not passing through beta blocker and they're still symptomatic, then they tend to kind of go pretty quickly to a myosin inhibitor as an option. The calcium channel blockers don't seem to work so well at managing obstruction. So what are our medical options, Alex? I know there's a lot. Yeah. And you know, the guidelines are about to be redone (laughs) because we just unfortunately wrote the last set of guidelines right before all this stuff changed. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I believe it was 2018, 2019. And so we're about to revise those guidelines to reflect all of the changes in management. Because like we said, up until a year ago, you know, we didn't have this whole armamentarium of myosin inhibitors to add. So it was really, you know, if you come in, you've just been diagnosed with HCM, you have shortness of breath, you don't feel well, whether you're obstructive or not obstructive, but you're having symptoms, then usually the first intervention is to try and do something to slow the heart down and help it fill. So we always tell folks to stay hydrated, drinking 64 ounces of water roughly a day. And then we try and start them on a little dose of a medicine that helps slow you down. And so beta blockers like metoprolol are kind of the classic ones we first go to. They are not without side effects. I personally did not tolerate metoprolol at all as a 15 year old kid. And so I took Brabamil for a while because I felt better on that. And they both slow the heart rate down, but beta blockers block your sympathetic nervous system and they're supposed to be more targeted towards the heart but they do have like off-site effects they can cause fogginess they can cause fatigue they can cause erectile dysfunction they can cause depression not everybody but if you take a beta blocker and you have some of those symptoms and you notice it just started happening after you started taking a beta blocker then i would talk to your cardiologist about that but beta blockers and calcium channel blockers like verapamil are the kind of the first line that we always offered. And then if that didn't work, we could try Norpace or disapyramide, which is a a slightly different kind of medicine. It's an antiarrhythmic, but that can also help with decreasing obstruction. Now there are some side effects with that. Urinary retention, dry mouth, and then you can take another medicine to treat those side effects. And at least in our institution, we have patients come into the hospital to monitor some EKG changes when you start that medicine to make sure it's safe for you to be on this medicine. 
So it's, you know, it's a, it's a, an involved process to be on that medicine as well. And there were issues getting long acting versions of it. So, you know, we had those options and if those didn't work and you had obstructive HCM, then we started talking about surgery if you still had significant symptoms. But now with myosin inhibitors, specifically the one that's been FDA approved is Mavicanthin or Camdios. You know, there is a role for if you have symptoms and, you know, it, and that might be, you know, I get shorter breath going up a flight of stairs, maybe not every day, but lots of days. And, you know, and we all have good days and bad days. So, you know, there could be days you feel fine. But if you get, if you're symptomatic from your HCM, eat, feeling bad after eating big meals, bad going up inclines, bad going upstairs, then we start talking about starting a myosin inhibitor early. I would say my practice has also been try a little bit of beta blocker first, try a little bit of hydration. Had a very sweet patient recently that we did that and her gradient disappeared and she felt great with just a little bit of beta blocker and water. And then two months later, she called me and says, Alex, I feel terrible. <laughs> so I had her come back in, had an echo, rip roaring obstruction. And I was like, okay, uncle. And so, and she's very symptomatic. And so we're, you know, starting Mavicanthin for her. But I, I do think that there is a role for thinking about these medicines earlier than maybe we had originally thought to see if we can decrease the obstruction, make you feel better and avoid some of the side effects from the standard medicines we've used. And so I have been offering it to symptomatic patients, even if they're just on a beta blocker, I, I haven't been ramping up max therapy, max doses for all of the medicines and then offering it like we used to do with surgery. And I, I think, mm. Boy, and this is like a can of worms for me because I've long been frustrated with, let's see how much we can throw at you. What can you tolerate with meds? And I think we've always kind of been afraid of the surgeon's knife. So we like give them more beta blockers before they meet the surgeon. And I think that was just a cultural thing that developed, like give them more meds before we can help them feel better. So the side effects for the meds ended up making them feel worse as well. And so we're compounding the problem. And I think we don't have to do that anymore. We don't have to suffer anymore. And I've, I've had to actually, the most challenging situations for me was actually going backwards. Yeah. I've had patients that come to me on a lot of metoprolol, a lot of verapamil and disapiramide and are having symptoms from all of those medicines and still feel terrible. And they're pacing. I had one that all of that and I had to undo the RV pacing. I weaned down the disapiramide and then I slowly went down on the verapamil, but that took a couple months because you can't just stop all these things at once. And once I got the patient down on a little bit less verapamil, then I started Mavicamptin, have since gotten the patient off of verapamil, and now they're on Mavicamptin beta blocker and they feel better than they have in years. But it's also, there's a lot of inertia there that like you're, you've been on these medicines forever, how on earth could I not be on them? Like because I'm scared I'm going to feel way worse. Yeah. I do not advocate stopping everything cold turkey. That is a terrible idea. Mm -hmm. But there are ways to safely wean some of the medicines that may not be giving you that much effect, but could be contributing to side effects. And then, you know, there's not, there aren't like great guidelines. We're still trying to figure this out ourselves here about how to manage background therapy when you're starting these new therapies we're getting better at it with experience. I think there is a role for don't get set in your ways because you've been on a certain regimen for 20 years if you feel bad. If you feel good, that's great. But if you don't feel good 
there are so many options now for obstructive HCM. And that is a great segue, Alex. Thank you for that. For obstructed, we, we know a lot. While we are talking septal reduction September, I'm going to segue to the non-obstructed community for just a moment and say we are doing clinical trials in the non-obstructed patient in a myosin inhibitor. Actually, you can kind of choose your study right now, people. This is your moment. Both Bristol-Myers-Squibb and Cytokinetics are both doing clinical trials in their myosin inhibitor contribution. So we have Mavic Hampton from BMS and Affy Hampton. If you would like to learn the differences between the two and learn about the clinical trials, you can go to our YouTube or Facebook page and you can see our webinar from last night and you can learn all about it. And if you are interested in learning about the BMS study, when you might want to talk to a trial coordinator, there's a survey you can uh, complete if you want to learn about other myosin inhibitor trials. There's a secondary survey. For the BMS, you can consent the HCMA to send your contact information to a clinical site coordinator. For the CYTO, we will notify you when the site's open and you may make contact yourself. So we have systems in place to help engage you with these trials and we do all need to learn together and grow together, but it's gonna take trial participants. So we're going to need to do some work together, people. We gotta build a bigger boat figure out how it floats. It's a little scary. Trials are scary because we don't know everything, but what we've seen so far out of myosin inhibitors has been highly, what's the word I'm looking for? I have a lot of um, cautious optimism. Yeah, yeah, I am too. Just because, you know, I, I stare at these echoes every day. I look at the hearts. I read, so I read every Mavic Hampton echo at Penn and I've probably read more myosin inhibitor echoes than maybe anybody in the country. And so, you know, in my mind, so you have your non-obstructive HCM patient and their hearts are squeezing super hard and maybe they don't have outflow tract obstruction per se, their hearts are really working. And then, and they feel bad. And you check labs and there's evidence that they have increased pressures in their heart. And so, and there's been some earlier data to suggest that there will be benefit and, you know, I. I think that decreasing some of that contractility, letting the heart go to maybe a slightly more normal function could provide benefit, but that's to be seen. I mean, they're going to look at people's exercise capacity, look at lab markers of heart stress to see if those things improve. In the end, it's, we want people to feel better. Right. That's the main thing. And, you know, I, you know, I know you've been working on finding better research outcomes to reflect that than some of the standard things we've been using because for the most part, they don't work that great for HCM patients. No, so that's kind of the dirty secret of our clinical trials because clinical trial endpoints were not developed for us specifically. So we borrow from other kinds of heart failure and other heart disease. We actually are going to be working both HCMA independently and with a couple of our partner advocacy organizations to develop better clinical trial endpoints for these trials in the future. They won't impact the two trials that we're you know, recruiting for now or the two class of trials we're recruiting for now. But in future, we wanna be more specific. We wanna be able to document things like our good day, bad days. We know they exist. We know we are a bit more um, impacted by 
those good days and bad days because when we're having a bad day our heart just doesn't want to support us and on a good day we think we're perfectly normal people and we can go from one to the other pretty quickly and for reasons that we don't even understand ourselves so if we could quantify that experience better in a scientific fashion and we could show less bad days or less severe bad days or an improved consistency and quality of life that's got a lot of value but we just have to figure out how to measure it and how to validate that and all of these things take collaboration they take partnership with between clinicians researchers and industry and it takes time and understanding from the patient community to want to contribute lots of q a and experiential research and we need to keep moving together yeah and it's not just going to help from a clinical trials and outcome standpoint but i think even from like a diagnosis and early management like i see so many patients that see me and their notes feels fine feels fine feels fine and then you meet them and you just ask a couple targeted questions and you're like you don't feel fine you feel terrible uh and so i think it, it's uh-huh. leading us to to miss symptoms and you know low-hanging fruit for treatment so we have covered quite the swath of septal reduction and obstruction management issues before we got on our call i said alex are we going to change septal reduction september to something more like management of gradient or management of obstruction september september it, it, the first one sounds better but that's septal all reduction yeah sounds good but we're learning together and we're the terminology will shift a little bit more and we will gain deeper knowledge and understanding as as partners and and as a community so i want to take a moment to remind the community it is time to come home to jersey people the hcma annual meeting is back october 21st i cannot wait to see you all in person you will have a full agenda full day we are going to feed you a continental breakfast, a lovely lunch, a great snack in the afternoon. And in between all that eating, there's going to be amazing content. We're going to talk about clinical trials. We're going to talk about myosin inhibitors. We're going to talk about shared decision making. We have a 45 minute panel on exercise in HCM that I'm really looking forward to. We have a pediatric cardiologist, Hugo Martinez from Bonner. Charlene Day from UPenn and Matt Martinez from Morristown, moderated by Marty Marin to talk about exercise, recreational activity, and competitive athletics. We have a session on septal reduction management. Dan Swistel, the surgeon from NYU. Anjali Owens is going to represent myosin inhibitors. And Hari Naidu is going to talk about ablation. So we're going to have master class. All of the people that you hear about, the papers that you read, is the citations that you see, they're all gonna be here. And you're gonna have an opportunity as patients to have conversations with them. And it's casual, yet formal, informative, and you get to be around your big-hearted friends. Alex will be presenting, I will be presenting, we are all gonna be there, and we're also gonna teach everybody how the HCMA can work for them and they can help the HCMA accomplish our goals as well. We have so much to look forward to on that day. We hope you all join us. It will not be virtual, it will be in person in Morristown, New Jersey, and you can register today. Hotel rooms are going very quickly, so if you want to book and you want to be on property at the Hyatt, you need to make those bookings ASAP. 
And then that night we have the Unmask the Great Masquerader Ball too. And that is a fundraiser for the Lori Fund. So you can stay for the day, join us for the night. It's going to be an amazing day. And I'm going to be exhausted by the end of it, but it'll be okay. Anything else from you, Alex? No, looking forward to it. I think I'm giving two talks. You're giving two talks. I, there's yeah. a chance that you might add something else, but we'll talk about that later. So we're going to be talking about our committee work. We're going to talk about the Health Equity Committee. We're going to talk about all kinds of amazing things that we hope to be able to do here at the HCMA with the support of our community. I have an announcement. I'm on vacation starting tomorrow. So I'm out of the office all next week, but the team is here to help anybody who needs them. I will not be talking to you for about two weeks because then we're going to the HSFA, Heart Failure Society of America meeting, and the HCM Society meeting. So we've got a busy couple of weeks coming up. And then I'm going to Brazil. We'll talk about that in another podcast. Back to work. We're going to go help big-hearted folks in Brazil. So that's pretty awesome. All right. Thank you for joining us today. Um, we did have two questions here. Alex, UPAN is accepting new HCM patients, are they not? You're probably up seeing me. So if yes. you're okay with seeing me, I am more than happy to see you. There you go. So yes, we're seeing new patients. We have a question about a child who is very tired after school. I don't know how old this child is, but he's been on Verapamil and Topril for 10 years and comes home from school and sleeps for three to four hours. They should be having a conversation with their pediatric cardiologist, shouldn't they? Yep, and they should be getting something that gets missed, they should be getting on a treadmill. They should be seeing what this child can do because you don't want you don't want changes to sneak up on you. You want to be very aware because treadmill can tell you a lot of things. Do they feel terrible because the heart rate doesn't go up because they're on too much verapamil and metoprolol? Do they feel terrible because they have severe obstruction when they exercise? Or do they feel terrible just because their heart can't keep up with what they want to do? I would definitely talk to the cardiologist you know, my brother had a similar type of way of living. He, he would be tired all day. And I think there could have been interventions earlier. And, and so he needed to be watched closer. And so I think that for that child, they should be very closely watched and they should be getting yearly treadmills at this point to make sure we're not missing something. At least give us some information. Now I really want to talk to you. <laughs> but yeah, have yeah. them see a cardiologist. Okay, Deborah, if there's anything we can help you with, you just call the office and we'll help you get set up with somebody. All right, everybody, thank you for joining this episode of Tales from the Heart. We hope you learned something. We hope we might have made you laugh for a minute there. And we hope you leave inspired to participate in a clinical trial when one is available for you. Alex, thanks. <laughs>